the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Thursday, June 8th, 2023. I am Seth Leaps, and our phone number is 602-508-0960. That's your key to entry. David Dahl, good to see you. Bill, good to see you. I was having a discussion of great books with a friend early this morning. Those we've read, those we need to. And then I said something that I'm not absolutely certain I'm right about. We've discussed a lot of books here over the years, including those with authors who've written them over the past uh, period of time we've been together. But what I said was to my friend this morning, I'm not sure there's been a really great and important book that's been written since about 1987. And what I mean by that is not that there haven't been great books since then, but what I meant by great and important and important is seismic, shaking, convulsing. Some of the really important books we've covered since the 80s then are about this or that issue and really good. Some of them are even great, but they come and go without a lot of lasting heft and attention. And they explain really well, usually a circumscribed or certain issue, but they don't explain a lot with implications and analysis that is very hard and rare to find. And the reason I mentioned the date of 1987 is that was the year of the closing of the American mind, that book by Alan Bloom. We would be so much worse off, dumber, even more ignorant without the likes of great books since then by some of our favorite authors and scholars, but nothing explains almost everything and has had as lasting a series of predictions and implications as Alan Bloom's closing of their the closing of the American mind. There, Bloom, a Plato scholar at the University of Chicago, famously wrote this, quote, There is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes, or says he believes, that truth is relative. If this belief is put to the test, one can count on the student's reaction. They will be uncomprehending. That anyone should regard the proposition as not self-evident astonishes them, as though he were calling into question that two plus two equals four. There are things you simply, these are things you simply don't think about. The students' backgrounds are as various as America can provide. Some are religious, some atheists, some are to the left, some to the right, some intend to be scientists, some humanists or professionals or businessmen, some are poor, some rich. They are unified only in their one thing, relativism. He goes on to explain, and I'm quoting, the students, of course, cannot defend their opinion. It is something with which they have been indoctrinated, close quote. But this has shifted and turned since Alan Bloom wrote that. Yes, truth is too often still too relative, but right thinking politically is not relative. It comes with a hardened certainty, not to mention demagoguery in a certain certitude of leftism. So conservative thought, as it is now called, is dangerous or extreme. 
It can't even be fascist. And so it must be banned or marginalized. That is the truth students and now too many adults now subscribe to. The discovery of all liberal thought, though, all progressive thought, the thoughts most of us, you and I, disagree with but have captured so many millennials, has come about by one ironic thing the progressives now disdain, which is free thought and inquiry, ethics and rules of reason that stem from academic freedom in the First Amendment, ethics and rules of reason that came from, wait for it, the West and Western philosophy. Now having taken advantage of those ethics, they choose to roll them up and put them away and deny them to anyone else, as if they are at and they have discovered the end of history. Philosophers used to worry about these things, the problems of open societies and how their weaknesses and strengths, depending on your point of view, could be taken, of it, could be taken advantage of and used against them. Consider the open society of ancient Greece killing Socrates, after all. But it was only Western culture and philosophy and, frankly, American jurisprudence that supported philosophical and liberal inquiry, free thought, free debate. It dawns on me, as I say all this, that as we're closing off and as we've closed off our minds, or our schools have closed off the minds of their pupils to only one point of view and a revisionist one at that, it's worth considering for a moment the idea of a pupil, isn't it, or student. It's also the word for the part of the eye that dilates and contracts to see depending on the amount of light it takes in. Pupils of the eye usually expand the darker it gets, but in our corrupt view of education, pupils as students get smaller and smaller in their understanding of things and ability to learn things the darker and the less they are exposed to. I probably need to develop this thought a bit more. But Alan Bloom writes, quote, It surely was impressive to Italian and German intellectuals in whose eyes the fascist and Nazi movements found favor that self-assertion, not justice or a clear view of the future, self-assertion was the crucial element of their regimes, close quote. In other words, my truth, self-assertion, not justice or a clear view, not an objective view, not a full and exposed view, that's what tyrannies relied upon. There is, of course, the story that Pol Pot of Cambodia took the glasses away, seized glasses from intellectuals, reading glasses, and ground them up, lest they read for themselves and thus think for, them, think for themselves. There's a lot to eye imagery, after all, isn't there? Back to something crucial here. When the revolt against teaching Western culture or Western civilization began here roughly in 1987, recall the chant at Stanford that year, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go, what went was all the ethics of Western civilization as well as the scholarship about and within it, a scholarship that was dedicated to open inquiry, the mind of reason and the reasoning mind, the virtue of debate and the Socratic method of teaching, the exposure to outside and different ideas. And the prejudicial turn was to something deemed other, different, multicultural, if you will, and mostly just not white and especially not dead and white. Not the Bible or any of the art it inspired, not Aristotle, not Plato, not Rousseau, not Machiavelli, not Shakespeare, and certainly not Madison and Jefferson. 
As William Bennett said in a speech at Stanford when he was Secretary of Education when they were removing the Western canon, quote, The abiding strength of the West was that it was inquisitive about other cultures and societies in a way no other culture or society was about ours or any other. That was certainly one reason to study Western Civ, or as Alan Bloom put it, It is astonishing how little a Frenchman knows or has a feeling for things that are not French. But to Americans, Homer, Virgil, Dante, Shakespeare, Goethe belong to everyone or to civilization. Back to Bennett, quote, We do not understand the ideals of other cultures better by misunderstanding our own or adequately enrich an intercultural thesis by offering to it anything less than the best that we have, close quote. Professor Bloom would write that, quote, if the students were really to learn something of the minds of any of these non-Western cultures they now elevated as more important than the Western ones their own, which they do not, they would find that each and every one of these cultures is in fact ethnocentric. All of them think their way is the best way and all others are inferior. Herodotus tells us that the Persians thought that they were the best, that those nations bordering on them were next best, that those nations bordering on the nations bordering on them were the third best, and so on. They're worth declining as the concentric circles were farther and farther from the Persian center. This is the very definition of ethnocentrism, close quote. He put it, only in the Western nations, that is to say those influenced by Greek philosophy, is there some willingness to doubt the identification of the good with one's own way. And that perhaps is the single most important point, the great and important point that I was making with my friend this morning that has not been approved upon since Bloom wrote that. I'll repeat its essence. There is a blurring that takes place, an obscuring when we confuse our own passions or interests, our self-interests with the larger good. That is the set point, after all, of every tyranny, to repeat, a triumph of the will of the self-interest, an elevation of passion and will over reason and objectivity, the triumph of the subjective and the conversion of it as the absolute right or the new truth, might making right, not right making might in Abraham Lincoln's construction. And this is how, of course, we have certitudes that Republican or conservative positions aren't just wrong ab initio. They are intolerable and beyond the pale. If you doubt the current cultural of thought, the, if you doubt the current culture of thought, political or otherwise, you aren't mistaken or debatable. You don't have a right to debate, not in a classroom, not on a campus, not in an election. You are not debatable. You are contemptible. Thus, a conservative judge at Stanford has no right to speak at Stanford. Thus, Riley Gaines has no right to speak at San Francisco State University. Indeed, assaulting and battering her will take place and be justified. Thus, the Republican Party is the party of fascism and fear, as the head of the DNC routinely puts it. Thus, supporting standard and popular Republican leaders whose positions are combinations of Lincoln and Coolidge and Goldwater and Reagan is extremism a threat to democracy, an existential threat to the Constitution. 
Thus, it is abuse of children to think or say that children should be protected from the physical change of their natural sex. Thus, it is abuse to think or say that we should protect children from pornography. Anyway, it is the closing of the mind and the defenestration of open inquiry and the conscientious effort to elevate anything contrary to it as inherently better that has brought us to our present place. And that is why I say it is hard to improve on a teaching or warning, a book as great and important as that one. We are all now, after all, watching the trial and death penalty of Socrates right here as a result. Just some thoughts. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. It's easy to uh, lose track of all the scandals that have... uh, Involved family Biden, but there are a bunch, though the only headlines you tend to read about is nearing indictments of the former president, Donald Trump. Um, The closest uh, one in front of us with regard to him has to do with classified documents. Have we just forgotten Joe Biden's that were found in four different places? even after we were assured after each successive finding that that was the last one? Is that not worthy of headlines anymore? After all, he is the current sitting president. Um, Hunter Biden's gun? Hunter Biden's seemingly uh, desire to declare penury with regard to child support? Any number of influence operations that were here and gone in the flash, the blink of an eye, two weeks ago with the discovery of nine Biden family members receiving millions in an anfractious international banking scheme that looked like it was deliberately designed to avoid the notice of U.S. regulators. And today this... From Fox News, President Joe Biden was allegedly paid five million dollars by an executive of the Ukrainian national gas firm Burisma Holdings, where his son Hunter Biden sat on the board. This according to a confidential human source and what he told the FBI or she during a June 2020 interview. The sources briefed Fox News Digital on the contents of the FBI-generated FD-1023 form alleging a criminal bribery scheme between then-Vice President Joe Biden and a foreign national that involved influence over U.S. policy decisions. The FD-1023 form, dated June 30, 2020, is the FBI's interview with a highly credible—that's in quotes because that's— DOJ speak, or FBI speak, with a highly credible confidential source who detailed multiple meetings and conversations he or she had with a top Burisma executive over the course of several years, starting in 2015. Fox News Digital has it described by several sources who are aware of its contents. 
An FD-1023 is used by FBI agents to record reporting from confidential human sources. The form is used to document information as told to an FBI agent, but recording that information does not validate or weigh it against other information known to the FBI. The Burisma executive sought the advice of the confidential source, a business professional, on gaining U.S. oil rights and getting involved with a U.S. oil company, the source is familiar with the documents said. The Burisma executive was speaking with the confidential source to get advice on the best way to go forward. According to the form, the confidential human source said the Burisma executive discussed Hunter's role on the board. The confidential human source questioned why the Burisma executive needed his or her advice in acquiring access to U.S. oil if he had Hunter Biden on the board. The Burisma executive answered by referring to Hunter Biden as dumb. The Burisma executive explained to the confidential source that Burisma had to pay the Bidens because the Ukrainian prosecutor, Viktor Shokin, was investigating Burisma and explained how difficult it would be to enter the U.S. market in the midst of that investigation. The confidential source further detailed that conversation, suggesting to the Burisma executive that he pay the Bidens $50,000 each, to which the Burisma executive replied, it is not 50000 it is $5 million. Five million for one Biden, five million for the other Biden, the Burisma executive told the confidential source. Another source familiar said, according to the document, the five million dollar payments appeared to reference a kind of retainer Burisma intended to pay the Bidens to deal with a number of issues, including the investigation led by Shokin. Another source referred to the arrangement as a pay to play scheme. Sources familiar told Fox News that the confidential human source believes that the $5 million payment to Joe Biden and the $5 million payment to Hunter Biden occurred based on his or her conversations with the Burisma executive. The confidential source said the Burisma executive told him he paid the Bidens in such a manner through so many different bank accounts that investigators would not be able to unravel this for at least 10 years. The document then makes reference to, quote, the big guy, close quote, which has been said to be a reference to Joe Biden. The Burisma executive told the confidential source that it wasn't a direct payment. By the way, let's talk about this confidential human source. We have learned, Fox News has learned, that, quote, that source has been used by the FBI before as a regular, reliable source of information for 12 years and has been paid approximately $200,000 by the FBI for that source work over the last 12 years. The Burisma executives appear to be at a very, very high level of the company. Anyway, the story goes on, and you will recall that um, Joe Biden may have incriminated himself in some of this back to his um, bragging of efforting as a vice president, getting that investigator fired. Remember that one in front of the Council of Foreign Relations? Son of a gun. They fired the prosecutor. Remember that? He's just not that smart. The question is whether the New York Times wants us to be that smart. Because I remember well all their fawning over confidential sources when scandals involved, reporting involved scandals on the Trumps most of which didn't appear to be anything, most of which appeared to be, in fact, lies, made up and not true. Will they cover this one with just as much gusto? You want to take bets on that one? I'll be right back.
Threats to our financial freedom and stability are growing. Russia, India, China, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, they're all conducting international trade in local currencies, not the U.S. dollar. Rising interest rates and bad loans are exposing the banking system, causing failures. And the Biden administration is sending hundreds of billions of dollars abroad while depleting our strategic oil reserves and ignoring crumbling infrastructure here at home. However, the biggest financial threat may be coming from within. Central bank digital currency is real. The patents have been filed and the banks have released plans for implementation. The vets at the Midas Gold Group see devastating implications. The end of financial privacy, the end of cash, big government able to see your every purchase. Could there be ties to social credit? Own private currency, gold and silver. And now you can get free silver just for asking Midas Gold Group how you can use your retirement to own physical gold. Call the Midas Gold Group today at 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. Or visit them online at MidasGoldGroup.com. The only precious metals dealers, Seb Gorka and I, and thousands of you already know and trust. Uh, Pat Robertson passed away today in his 90s, 93, I believe he was. And it's hard to describe his impact on the culture or politics. It was huge. Um, even if he has been quiet over the last, uh, I don't know, decade and a half or so, it was huge. Um, aside from the Christian Broadcasting Network and Regent University, um, not to mention what was contained in Christian Broadcasting Network, what it broadcast, what it reached, not to mention the graduates of Regent University and some of the people who have affiliated with it. But his political run for the president, his his politics as well, and his influence on our politics, he ran for president in 1988 in the Republican primary. He obviously lost out to George Herbert Walker Bush. But he did very well in a lot of the primaries, particularly in Iowa, and chased away a lot of other candidates as well. Jack Kemp would say that without Pat Robertson, he would have had a much greater chance that Pat Robertson was chasing the same, was running in the same lane, as we use that phrase now, that he was. Um and I remember Jack talking about when he did beat uh, Robertson and Pete DuPont in those some of those primaries. He would say, well, we won the conservative primary. Those were considered the three real conservatives, Jack Kemp, Pete DuPont, and um, Pat Robertson. The campaign was seen was seen with a great deal of skepticism by many, in fact, probably most. And it was an easy thing to beat up the Republican Party on by having such a um, such a strong uh, Christian leader who was known for just being a Christian minister as running for president. But his movement and the number of votes he received in that failed effort 
led to the creation of another organization you don't hear much from anymore. But I can't begin to tell you how huge and impactful it was in our country and in our politics, and particularly in Washington, D.C., for probably about a decade. And that was the that was the Christian Coalition. The Christian Coalition was founded as a result of, and with the help of Pat Robertson, but as a result of his 1988 presidential campaign. His presidential campaign of 1988, in other words, was the precursor to the Christian Coalition. One might say no Pat Robertson, no Christian Coalition. One might say no Christian Coalition, no 1994 retaking of Congress, no Gingrich Revolution. It's efforts in affecting, effectuating that victory cannot be overstated. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Um, oh, wow, look at this. A call all the way across the country from Portland, Maine. Rowan is in Portland, Maine. Hello, Rowan. Can you hear me, buddy? Hello, hello? Hello? Is Are you possibly on mute? Or do you have the phone away from your ear? Tell you what, I'm going to put you on hold, and uh, it's exciting to get a call from Maine, and I'll have uh, the producer double-check and give you a few moments to see if uh, maybe you set the phone down or there's a problem. By the way, D- David, you'll get a kick out of this. The endorsements for the main candidates in that 1988 primary, Bob Dole had the endorsements of Strom Thurmond, John Connolly, Alexander Haig, ultimately, and Warren Rudman. Jack Kemp had the endorsements of Trent Lott, Newt Gingrich, oh, really? yeah, 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 uh, Bob Smith and Gordon Humphrey of New Hampshire. And uh, it's unclear to me who endorsed anyone, who famous endorsed uh, Pat Robertson. Um, I do know of one person who did, interestingly enough. His name's been a little bit in the news. He's still alive. Rosie Greer. Rosie Greer endorsed... Uh, endorsed Pat. Let me give you a little taste of Pat Robertson. This was from a debate, a a presidential primary debate in 1988 on firing line. There were a lot of events that uh, took place where the candidates in 1988 spoke, um, but they didn't really ever debate except for two instances that I know of. That is where they got to confront one another. One was on a special firing line, a firing line special Bill Buckley's and one was in a um, uh, one of one was in a forum in Texas between Bush and Kemp. But here was uh, Pat Robertson summarizing his campaign theme in his closing remarks at the firing line debate in 1988. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it is my feeling that we need to restore the greatness of America through moral strength. We see Americans consuming 60 percent of the world's drugs. We see a family crisis with 14.6 million children with one or more single parents. Uh, We see a million girls, teenagers, pregnant every year. We see a declining uh, school situation. 
and we realize that our economic strength, instead of being the world's greatest creditor, by the end of this year, we will owe $400 billion in the world economy, and we become the world's largest debtor. Now, we can congratulate ourselves on all the wonderful things we have done, and I believe this is the greatest nation on the face of the earth, and I am proud to be an American. But I know that you feel, as I feel, that we owe something to our children and our grandchildren. We're the first generation ever to consume the patrimony of our unborn children on our wasteful excesses. And this isn't being anti-government, it's the truth. And we need to do something in America. If one out of every four workers is on drugs on the job, if we have a spread of AIDS, a virulent uh, infection, life-threatening, one of the worst in the history of the world, it's time for action. Yes, we've been talking about leadership, but what are the practical solutions? It seems like to me the first thing we've got to do in America is get back to basics. And many of the things are not governmental solutions. We can't make through government husbands love their wives or wives love their husbands or families bring up their children as law-abiding, God-fearing citizens. That's got to be done in the private sector. But I believe an opportunity for all Americans. I believe in reaching out to every segment of our society, to the inner cities, to the blacks, to the Hispanics, to those in the south, the north, the east, and the west, that truly this nation might be one nation under God. Yeah, that was his uh, closing uh, argument in the uh, in the 1988 primary debate on firing lines. Sixty percent of the world's drugs we consumed, he said back then. Uh, and you heard about the $400 billion deficit. Uh, what we wouldn't do for those numbers today. Were they addressed? No, they've gotten worse. Sixty percent of we consume sixty percent of the world's drugs. We consume about ninety percent of the world's opioids, and probably seventy-five percent of all the world's uh, prescription drugs. We are a um, we are a high society. Four percent, roughly, of the world's population consuming seventy-five percent of the drugs. Four hundred billion deficit. He was worried about back then. Um, yeah. Boy, what we wouldn't do for those problems that they were concerned about then. I would trade our bag of problems for their bag of problems. Should we try Rowan in Maine again? Hi, Rowan. Are you able to hear me? Yeah, hello. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. Sorry we had a little connection problem. Uh, Portland, Maine. I know Maine really well. How long you lived there? I lived here all my life. Um, it's a very nice town. I live in. Yeah, no, it's lovely. I've spent. A, I have a lot of family scattered around Augusta and uh, Water oh. Waterville, and uh, uh, my mom graduated Bangor High, actually. Oh, that's a very good. Yes, I I do like it here. It's a great state. It's a very uh, conservative, which is very good. I didn't find it that way, but okay. I'm glad to hear it's improving since I have. A, anyway, thank you. Good to good to have you with us. What's on your mind today? Well, the reason I uh, decided to call into your show um, was because I I, um, I want to tell you about this uh, relatively unknown uh, presidential candidate that we have from our state of Maine. Um, he's a Republican, I believe. Um, I don't know if he has uh, made it official, official, but he's a very good man. His name is Cole Phillips. Um, he's, um, he's a very, very kind man. I believe he'll bring prosperity and, 
economic growth through the country. I don't know. Have you heard of Cole Phillips? No, and it sounds like you might want to do a little homework, too. Is he running? Is he not? Is he a party? What party is he? Uh, feel free to you know do your research and let us know, but uh, I can probably tell you, Rowan, that um, this, uh, this is not a candidacy that's going to go very far uh, in that uh, – it looks like uh, we pretty much know who's running at this point, and uh, it's kind of hard to, if I'm being just candid and honest with you, it's kind of hard to take seriously a candidacy when we don't know what their party is. We had John Shattuck on the other day, yesterday, and he was talking about certain kind of candidates that run for office who want to just be in office. They don't actually have a conviction, and, uh, and you know, they look around for an office or a or a can or a, or an electably uh, you know win or they could they find an open seat in or a vulnerable candidate they could take out and and then they figure out what party they're in then they figure out their ideas they're a politician first and a um and a and and a and a and a, and a, and a person of conviction second and it sounds um i mean i think we're surfeited with those we've had uh, too many surfeits of those which is why um, often you find, whether it's in state houses or the federal legis or you know the Congress in Washington D.C. or the Senate in Washington D.C., uh, while you find caucuses, you know you think you're voting for a Republican and you're getting a conservative, but you find within the Republican Party the need for these caucuses, you know, to be the conservative element of the Republican party. So uh, in Jack Kemp's day, it was the Conservative Opportunity Society with him and Ben Weber and Newt Gingrich. With John Shattig, it was the Republican Study Committee and forward. All right. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Bank failures, stock market volatility, possible recession coming, inflation that uh, we've been lied to about. Why refi has an investment in a portfolio. It's got a high fixed rate of return. It's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed, the Federal Reserve. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off. You compound it, whatever you like. No loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no there are no fees in this collateralized and secure portfolio from Y Refi, and they are Y Refi. They are based here locally. They and I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there, and you won't get a sales pitch. No one's going to ask you to sign a thing. And when you meet with the team at Y Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much, and you can too. A due diligence approved firm, you can earn up to 10.25% rate of return with Y-Refi. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34. That's 888-Y-REFI-34. David, you had a interesting experiment today and um, no I'm not talking about your lunch although I need to and I want to I don't think you quite understand the notion or import of what a sandwich is when I see you eating a sandwich the biggest part of it should not be the tomato okay are we on this yes we are on this I think you need elementary instruction on what constitutes a sandwich 
They don't even have a tomato in the two all be patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. There's not even a tomato. But when you have meats and cheeses and, yeah, a few accoutrements, the accoutrements should be, you know, the smallest part, not the largest part. That having been said, I'll allow you to retort at the top of the hour break off air because I'm, I'm just right about this. It's not open <laughs> okay. for debate. Um you looked up the word patriot on Google today, and what happened? Yeah, so as many of our listeners know, I, I voice some spots on our station. Yeah. And I was uh, looking up for, for synonyms of patriots to uh, you know refer to our listeners because we talk to our listeners affectionately as patriots of this country. And for whatever reason, and I think it should be known, and I think this might be you know an issue that's kind of gone under the radar, but Google is now associating <laughs> the word patriot yeah. with chauvinistic and jingoism. Yeah, it's really interesting. They've turned it into a pejorative word. If of you course, type yeah. in "patriot" into Google, this is part of the problem. This is part of the problem with Chat GPT and stuff. I mean, you are going to be using the prejudices of the programmers, and "patriot," which should be a good thing, has taken on a pejorative. It's an, a, a negative. It's a very odd thing. I remember someone once said to me, who didn't agree with my politics, "Are you a patriot? Do you consider yourself a patriot?" And I said, "Well." Don't you? And she goes, what do you mean? I said, a patriot's someone who loves their country. Do you not love your She goes, well, I do. I said, then you're a patriot. And she goes, well, I guess I am. <laughs> we need better thinking in this country. We don't need a better dictionary. We just need to go back to the old good dictionary. It should do us just fine. Thanks for pointing that out. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 